0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Teacher Stephen Parentis was planning on taking a group of seniors in his field studies class on a series of trips this week to places like the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Ice Core Laboratory. I can give them articles, but if they go to the Ice Core lab, they're going to remember it. And,
1: you know, I figure why talk about climate science as someone like myself without a background in it Might as well take them somewhere where they can talk to somebody with a background in climate science.
0: Parentis teaches at Bear Creek High School in Lakewood. The field trips are now on hold and may be canceled altogether because of the government shutdown that began Saturday. The U.S. Senate is negotiating at this hour to end it. Parentis figures his kids were Googling government shutdown over the weekend. A civics lesson in and of itself, which he calls pretty cool. Meanwhile, the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs forfeited all its weekend athletic events due to, as one official said, the limitations imposed by the shutdown. Parentis, the high school teacher, was just one of the Coloradans who responded when CPR News asked, how will the shutdown affect you? And what was the last one in 2013 like? Scott Marcotte of Lakewood is in food service at the Denver Federal Center. He helps feed the 6,000 or so people who work there. A government shutdown means most of those employees don't go to work, and if they aren't there...
2: Basically, they put us out of business. You know, it doesn't just affect me. I have 13 employees that work for us as well that are going to be out of work, and I run the risk of losing all my staff because they can't sit around and wait for weeks on end without a paycheck.
0: Marcot told us this weekend brought back some bad memories of the last shutdown.
2: October 1st of 2013, when it happened the last time, you know, it was a Monday when they shut it down. So we had done a bunch of food prep for the week to take care of our customers. And they kept saying, oh, it will reopen in a couple of days. I'll probably get it worked out. Well, it went 17 days. So all that food we had prepped, we lost. It was, it was a pretty large sum of money that we lost. In order to recap that, we had to get a loan to reopen the doors again.
0: Donna Torek of Canyon City echoes that, saying coverage of the shutdown often misses an important point, that federal employees likely will get back pay when the government reopens. Quote, it's the contractors working for the government that suffer the most. Her company, Torek Associates, is a contractor. Last shutdown, she adds, we had to lay off personnel who we spent lots of money training. We used overhead to keep single mothers and other employees on staff as long as possible. But again, we didn't recover that money. It hurts badly. And there's Dina Larson of Denver, who's a technical writer with the Bureau of Reclamation. Larson made it clear she's not speaking in an official capacity.
2: The other thing that affects us that people don't realize is we have been threatened with this for so long. So on a personal level, it's uh, the last time we were threatened with, cru- with a shutdown was like the day before Christmas. And we're like, oh, great, this is going to be a lovely Christmas. What presents do we give our kids? Imagine if you were to go into work every day and say, well, you know, you have a job right now, but we're going to decide whether you're going to be able to work on December 12th, 12th on December 24th. Oh, we're going to let you work until January 19th. Oh, we're going to let you work until it's insane on a personal level.
0: Larson says she's experienced numerous shutdowns during her 26 years working for the government. And for her, the experience has been excruciating, quite literally. Larson suffers from an extremely rare condition that causes abnormal bone growth. Her bones dislocate easily because of it. In 2013, she'd just been selected for an experimental drug trial funded by the government.
2: You're talking about a thousand people. No company in their right mind's going to put that money into research. However, the government with CDC is doing so because that research may not only help us, it may help bone cancer, it may help autism, it may help a lot of other diseases. So the CDC got together, managed to get the protocols, the volunteers for drug trials. They did this about a month before the October shutdown. One or two days of a shutdown You can make up. But if you're talking about a daily trial where you're calling people daily saying, "Okay, what's your routine? What's your meds? All the variables of a a human study. And you miss three weeks. Your study is gone, obliterated.
0: As fate would have it, Larson had recently been given a second chance.
2: Now, there's another trial going on with a slightly different drug. Because they never do get the wherewithal to do the other one. And the other one is just gone. Um, this one will address the bone growth. It may address some of the pain and the dislocations. It would be great for bone cancer if it works. Well, it just started in November. And if we go for a couple of days, I'm sure it will be okay. But if this goes for more, let's say a week, just goes out the window.
0: And she says that means she stays in pain. Just a few ways a government shutdown affects Coloradans. Solar companies across the state are closely watching a trade case in Washington, D.C. this week. The outcome could mean tariffs or taxes on imported solar panels from other countries. The majority of Colorado's solar companies are against this, saying it would harm their businesses by driving up costs President Donald Trump is expected to weigh in any day now. And here to fill us in on details is our energy reporter, Grace Hood. Nice to see you, Grace. Hey there. The state has nearly 200,000 homes powered by solar, and that uh, means about 6,000 workers in the industry. What What is the nature of the industry, would you say, here?
3: most Colorado and U.S. solar companies focus on making everything but the panels. So that means they make the wires, the energy converters, the racks. And, you know, a huge part of the industry here is focused on solar installation and homes and buildings. So really, there's just a handful of companies that still actually make solar panels in the United States. And a lot of panels are imported from Southeast Asia and other countries. They can really make them a lot cheaper. They have huge factories over there and economies of scale. Because of that, two U.S.-based solar panel makers, their names are SolarWorld and Cineva, filed a case with the Washington, D.C.-based International Trade Commission.
0: And this case outlines their complaint, which is?
3: They say that 30 U.S. solar cell manufacturers in the U.S. have been driven out of business in recent years. And here's what they want. Uh, Cineva asked for a $0.74 per watt floor price on panels right now the average floor price worldwide for panels is about 32 cents. Okay. They're also asking for a tariff of 32 cents uh, per watt per panel. Both the floor price and the tariff would ramp down over time under Cineva's plan. And you know there's a slight difference in Solar World's proposed plan but really you know the upshot here is that both companies say this would level the playing field and bring more panel makers to the United States. Because
0: as you said there there just aren't many right now. Remind where this trade case stands right now?
3: An interim ruling so far supports tariffs, but it's lower than what the two companies asked for. Several recommendations from commissioners, all are less stringent than what the companies have suggested. And um, these commissioners have suggested staging down the tariff over four years. Let's
0: just be clear about something. Most U.S. companies that install solar panels don't want their costs to go up. So they're against this case. That's right. Okay. And that makes it sound like this could be creating some splits in the industry, really.
3: Well, um, you know, I'd say it's maybe more like a tiny fracture. There's not a whole lot of U.S. manufacturers right now. I think what's fascinating here is that, you know, large to small installation companies say, Hey, if you raise the cost of panels, it's really going to hurt the growth of this industry. And it's going to mean a loss in jobs, they say. Colorado has seen explosive growth in recent years. Think about all the panels that you've noticed on homes or companies over the last decade. And mm-hmm. you, you know, you really see that also. You look at a, a recent request for proposals that Excel energy shared with the public earlier this month. And it wants to get to 55% renewable energy over the next eight years. Um, You know, lowering their carbon footprint is one driver, but I'd say perhaps an even bigger driver is that solar and other renewables like wind are just getting cheaper every year.
0: And thus more available. Yeah. We've already seen some early effects from this case. Uh, What's been happening here in Colorado?
3: Uncertainty is causing a lot of turmoil in the industry. And a lot of installers are reporting that the cost of solar panels has already really gone up.
0: Has already gone up. Yes. But if nothing's been decided, why would that be so?
3: Well, some installers say that panel prices have increased 15 to 30% this January compared to last year. And, you know, it's really happening because the uncertainty is causing companies to buy up panels and to lock in a certain price. I'm also hearing about large scale projects being put on hold. Companies don't want to ink a deal that's going to start in a couple of months, only Mm. to find out that the price that they've promised is nearly impossible to meet. So, um, that could ultimately affect the industry and employment and jobs. Overall, I'd say installers are fearful about tariffs being imposed and prices going up even
0: more. If you're just joining us, Grace Hood is with us. She's CPR's energy and environment reporter. We're talking about potential solar tariffs, the decision likely to come down this week. In fact, there's a deadline Friday for President Trump, I think, to announce his decision. Mm -hmm. An interesting detail about this case that's worth mentioning. Uh, Both of the manufacturers asking for tariff protections in the United States are actually foreign-owned, right? Yeah.
3: This is something, you know, when I pick up the phone and call my solar contacts, uh, almost everyone loves to bring up this point. Solar World is a subsidiary of a German company that recently declared insolvency. Cineva was founded in Georgia but declared bankruptcy and is majority-owned by a Chinese firm. Mm. I think this just really illustrates how sophisticated and global the solar market has become. It's highly specialized. And, you know, back to what the majority of Colorado companies are asking for it. They're saying, President Trump, please don't meddle in this market. And
0: President Trump has the final say on this trade case, right? That's right. Any indications as to what he'll do?
3: Uh, Most in the industry expect him to impose some kind of tariff. Um, The ITC, that's the International Trade Commission, they have recommended some action. And, you know, think back to the campaign trail. President Trump was a vocal critic of the North American Free Trade Agreement. He's also spoken in support of the coal industry and fossil fuels and hasn't said a whole lot to acknowledge uh, job growth in the solar industry. So I think the question a lot in the industry are asking is you know how big a tariff he will impose if it's small like 10 to 20% that wouldn't be desirable but it wouldn't be catastrophic if it's much bigger that has a much more significant impact and potential job losses. Meantime, Solar World has already brought back laid-off workers in anticipation of a win of the trade case.
0: Okay, they're optimistic. Thanks, Grace. Thank you. That is CPR energy reporter Grace Hood talking about a forthcoming decision by President Donald Trump on potential U.S. solar tariffs. The solar market is robust in Colorado. When we come back, the editor of the Denver Post on whether a paywall can keep the paper viable... This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The state's largest newspaper just got harder to read for free. The Denver Post now charges 11.99 a month online after just a handful of free stories. It's only the latest paper in Colorado to put up a paywall. What does shrinking ad revenue and shrinking staff mean for news and accountability in the state? To answer these questions, I'm joined now by Leanne Colossiopo, who's the editor of the Denver Post. Welcome back to the program.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I want to know that this isn't the first time your paper has tried online subscription. Uh, why has the Post moved to try again now?
4: Things have changed since when we did it before, Um Ad revenue isn't bringing in the same kind of money it did when we tried it before. And frankly, um, digital subscriptions are much more common than they were when we tried before. People are now much more accustomed to the idea that they will need to pay for the content they read online. So between the fact that we were looking for additional revenue streams and we thought that the time was right in terms of our audience and how ready people were to buy – It seemed like the right time to go for it.
0: Indeed, papers across the state have moved to this model. So in a way, they are getting your own audience used to this. That includes the Grand (laughs) Junction, Daily Sentinel, the Colorado and in Fort Collins, the Boulder Daily Camera, the Colorado Springs Gazette, the Greeley Tribune. Uh, You say this is partly because of ad revenue declining. Uh, Help people understand why that's happening right now for newspapers.
4: Well, the the fact is that a lot of the digital, nearly all of the new digital um, revenue, over 80%, um, is split between Facebook and Google. So that leaves all the other media that are out there to scramble for that last little bit, oh. and it's just not worth as much as it used to be. Competition and um, the rates have just driven that down. So while we still may have the same number of ads, and of course people certainly see them every time they go to the site, they're actually bringing us – Uh, less money per view. So it's just not as profitable.
0: You're about a week into the experiment, is that right? Just about right. I call it an experiment. This is actually the new model, so we should be clear about that. What are the results so far? Can you tell us anything about the preliminary numbers?
4: Well, um, we're not sharing, of course, the exact exact numbers. And we're still doing a lot of testing, but we've been excited. One of the things I think is most exciting is the number of people who are just going ahead and subscribing before they ever even hit the paywall. They're not waiting to get there. Um, Right now, we still have it set up at about 15 stories, 15 free stories. We'll be ratcheting that down. Um, But they're not waiting till they get to that point. They're just going ahead and saying, this is something I want to pay for and are doing it.
0: So if this indeed generates more revenue, Uh, Can you tell readers that that money will go to hiring reporters, hiring editors to the journalism as opposed to, say, the bottom line of the corporate owner?
4: At the moment, um, our key goal is to be able to maintain the basic place where we are right now. Um, every, everything that we're able to grow in terms of our revenue does feed back into allowing us to hire more journalists, more people on the staff, not just, um, not just newsroom staff, but uh, people to work in circulation and all through the operation to help, help, help bolster it.
0: I think what I heard you say there uh, at the beginning of that answer, though, is you'd like to be able to just hold on to the current employees before any kind of expansion happens.
4: Right. It's been no secret that our newsroom and and newsrooms around the country have been going down in staff, and we want to stop that, halt that right now, and then go ahead and be able to use the revenue that this generates to begin to build back up again. And we have seen that other publications around the country have had that kind of success. We have every reason to believe we will, too.
0: Okay. And uh, I'll just say that you had a recent round of layoffs. This has come really Mm -hmm. in just the past few months. Um, I I want to ask about uh, the post moving mm-hmm. uh, most of its operations out of its downtown building and out to Adams County. Is that correct?
4: Right. Uh, we still have a Denver address, but we're we're um, in unincorporated Adams County at uh, about 58th and Washington.
0: How does that fit into this bigger picture of revenue?
4: Well, we were renting our office space. Downtown, although it has our name on the building, that in fact we we were renting those floors, and we own the building um, out at the printing plant. So, it just made sense for us to take the money that we were putting on rent and and be able to put that toward the actual operations of the business. Um, you know, so much of what we do, you don't need to be peering out of a window in downtown Denver in order to do good journalism. We still have cars and can get where we need to get, and phones and um, A lot of the news doesn't happen right there at Civic Center Park. And we did leave downtown the people who needed to be downtown, but the rest of us who can do our jobs from anywhere are right on the edge of downtown.
0: A TV anchor in Denver, Kyle Clark, asked people on his show and on Twitter to subscribe to The Post. He said it's good for the state. The fact is The Post is the paper of record, and other news outlets, including this one, depend on on its foundational reporting. What is all they say about the state of journalism here, do you think, Leanne? In other words, do you think the industry here is doing as good a job as it used to in informing the public, holding people accountable?
4: David Simon uh, had said that this is a great time to be a corrupt politician in America Hmm. because there are not enough people out there keeping an eye on them. I'm not saying that our politicians are in any way corrupt here in Colorado, but the fact is that when we don't have enough people to staff the school board meetings, to staff all the city council meetings, it's very difficult to really keep an eye on how your money is being spent and how um, our, public official, our excuse me our public officials are behaving. So, no, I think that if we had 300 reporters, we would be doing a much better job holding everybody accountable. We'd be better able to um, go after all the open records that we want to go after. We just can't. We can't do everything we used to do. So what we do instead is uh, pick our our battles, uh, try to make the smartest choices we can and focus on what we do think is our core mission, which is, in fact – accountability and let some other things that aren't as directly related to the most important work we do go.
0: What's an example of that, what you, you've had to let go?
4: Um, well, one of the high-profile examples, for example, would be uh, we used to publish the TV grid every single day. And we quit doing that. It was an expensive service for us to buy so that we could turn that money and, and keep that money and put it right into actual reporting resources. <laughs>
0: Was the idea for the paywall top-down or bottom-up? In other words, was it, say, the newsroom clamoring for, gosh, it's time that people pay for this? Or was it a directive from corporate?
4: It was not a directive from corporate. What corporate did was provide the tools, and then they let the various properties decide... How they want whether they wanted to do um, a subscription model or not. So Boulder has done one for some time. Our sister paper in the Bay Area has just started one. We just started one, but not every newspaper is. Um, it was definitely came from it definitely came from our own operation. Maybe not the newsroom per se, but uh, the management at the Denver Post.
0: It's interesting because uh, at least for the paper product, people are accustomed to paying for the journalism. Mm-hmm. Do you find it um, somewhat puzzling that it has been so hard for newspapers to create a revenue stream online?
4: I guess in some ways I I equate it to the music industry. People were accustomed to going out and buying albums, right? When we were when we were kids, and then they were. I, able I remember to... those. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And then uh, people were thinking, well, I should be able to stream that music for free. And, it, and there was some adjustment. And I, I think that, unfortunately, we got, all got accustomed to consuming anything on the Internet for free. And there's some, there's some education involved in reminding people that that news doesn't get created for nothing. It's actually expensive to produce.
0: I feel like every time uh, we talk about the future of the Denver Post or, frankly, of any newspaper, this question always comes up. It will come up again here. <laughs> uh, do you foresee the day when the paper product is gone? Is that an active conversation right now?
4: It is not an active conversation. No. The the place I most ask that is in actually interviews like this one. Uh-huh. We don't sit around the office imagining that. The the print product is still a very important part of what we do. Uh, we still have thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, get it, tens of thousands, um, get the paper every day. And, and the uh Circulation circulation revenue attached to that is not at all inconsequential. The advertising revenue attached to that is not at all inconsequential. It's just an important, a curated print product is an important part of what we do, um, and so I don't. We don't see that anytime in the near future. Do I think that? Forever and ever and ever there will be a print product. I'm a little skeptical of that, but mm. I think it's here for a long time. Yeah,
0: not an imminent end to that. No. Leanne, nice to see you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Leanne Colosiopo is editor of the Denver Post, and we talked about the paper's decision to reinstitute a fee to read stories online. She was only atop Pike's Peak for 30 minutes But that was all the inspiration Catherine Lee Bates needed to write a patriotic poem called America. This was in 1893, and today we know it as the song America the Beautiful. Bates intended her poem as a kind of prayer for a country that she thought had lost its way. According to Melinda Ponder, she's the author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. And Melinda, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Catherine Lee Bates was a 33-year-old English professor at Wellesley College near Boston. Uh, What brought her to Colorado Springs that summer?
5: Well, <clears throat> it was a very exciting summer for her. She had um, had two men who the relationships didn't work out. So she was in really a lot of personal turmoil that spring of 1893. And her good friend, Catherine Komen, who was a colleague of hers at Wellesley College, an economist, I think, suggested to her that they come out to Colorado Springs to teach summer school. And uh, Catherine Coleman lived in, her family lived in Chicago. And so they would stop at the famous Chicago World's Fair of 1893 with its White City, a fair that was celebrating America's first uh, 400 years, just an extra year late. And uh, a fair that Really ask what is America and what should we be proud of? It had many American artists uh, with paintings there. Many, many, maybe fifty by Homer Winslow Homer, many by John Singer Sargent, Frederick Remington with his images of the West, and so they stopped in Chicago on the way, and then Catherine came on into Colorado Springs a few days of her friend. And came around the bend and saw the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And I know, coming from Boston, Boston where I live myself, she must have been just thrilled to see that exciting Colorado landscape.
0: Mm. Yes, as so many were. And so in some ways, heartbreak is part of this story. She had landed uh, a teaching gig at Colorado College, and this, this was her first trip west.
5: That's right. Well, Colorado College sponsored the summer school. It was just called the Colorado Summer School. A lot of high school teachers uh, came to it to take courses. They they could sleep in tents uh, under the Rocky Mountains to save money if they needed to, huh. to sort of beef up their credentials. And the the spa town of Colorado Springs invited its tourists to come to the classes also. And when Uh, Catherine taught that summer. She was in what was then called Palmer Hall. Palmer Hall is now a different building, but this was one of the two buildings there on that prairie where she could look out uh, to the mountains and not many other buildings very different from uh, the leafy campus of Wellesley College with its lake.
0: So we know what was going on for her personally. This was in some ways an escape from the the pain of her Eastern life, what was going on though in the country at that time? because uh really reading your book, Katherine Lee Bates from Sea to Shining Sea, uh, my sense is Melinda ponder that that she thought the country was in a in a rough place, might even have been on on the wrong track
5: she Yes, she knew that she had helped her friends at Wellesley, help create a settlement house for immigrants in downtown in Boston, and she was very aware, especially through these friends at Wellesley who were social activists, of all the problems facing the country. In the eighteen early 1890s, there was a terrible financial depression, which was putting uh, people out of work. There was a lot of conflict between native-born workers and immigrant workers who would work for uh, lower pay. There was in, – in Colorado, there was a terrible crisis over whether the silver standard would be changed to the gold standard and put all the silver mines out of work and all the miners out of work. And so there was a feeling people were just divided against each other, that the east was divided. east where the bankers and the monopolists were. Of course, this was before any of the laws against monopolies and before the income tax had been voted into – being so the east was seen as the villain taking the money from the miners and the farmers out west and so it was a time of great turmoil
0: and this is july 1893 and and she and some of the other summer school faculty uh, go on a day-long trip to the top of pike's peak amidst amidst all the chaos and national tumult you'll talk you're talking about and um as I mentioned, she was only on the summit for about a half hour, and she dashes off a telegram to her mother. Greetings from Pikes Peak. Glorious Dizzy. Wish you were here. Clearly, she was inspired by the scenery to write America the Beautiful. What else do you think was going through her mind?
5: Well, that trip had been touted as a, a chance to get above all the turmoil huh. on the Earth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, it, and it truly it was for her. I think that she she looked out—excuse <clears throat> me—when <clears throat> you were up there, of course, you look out and you don't see any boundaries of states, and you feel as if you are up above problems. You're in kind of a transcendent realm, looking out at the vast horizons. And she thought about the, f- the famous painting by Alfred Bierstadt that she'd seen in Longfellow's home in Cambridge, uh, where the great Manitou brings the warring tribes together, and she said— you know, she felt she was on the Gate of Heaven summit, sort of the, that book was about. And so I think she just felt that it was time to speak up. And uh, one of the uh, quotations I loved was from General Palmer, who had um, really created Colorado Springs, he said, could one live in constant view of these grand mountains without being elevated by them into a lofty plane of thought and purpose? Hmm. And I think she was inspired by the landscape and also by all the independent women that she saw in Colorado at the time. Colorado was about to vote. Uh, The male voters were about to give women the vote in state elections. And all this empowered her. And and made her feel that she had something to say to the country.
0: You write, she prayed for God to shed his grace on the nation, lifting it above its financial and social crises to a more ethereal realm like that atop Pike's Peak. Uh, but Bates never intended her original four stanza poem to become a song. How did it become a song? <laughs>
5: Well, that's right, and so she. It was published actually two summers later in 1895 on the fourth of July as a patriotic poem, and uh, but during the the next decade, people began. They wanted many more patriotic songs to sing. Nobody really liked the Star Spangled Banner, and it was so difficult (laughs) to sing, as we know. And so they began setting her words to various melodies, and they began changing her words around to make them simpler to sing. And so in 1904, after this is after the Spanish-American War, after the United States had become a global imperialist, and we were still fighting in the Philippines in the, the dreadful, bloody insurrection there where waterboarding uh, began, uh, she felt that, I think, If people were going to sing her song, first of all, she did make the words simpler. And second of all, she added the words about brotherhood from sea to shining sea. I think she felt if we were going to acquire these territories um, globally, that we should get our own house in order. And also a lot of the discussion about whether we should really— acquire the Philippines was over racism. What was going to happen if the Filipinos could vote in our elections? And there was a time, of course, when there were many lynchings in our own country. So she felt that the ideals of brotherhood were something that she prayed would be shed <laughs> and that we would remember those and and it was a prayer for God to help uh, it It does seem like
0: every couple of years there is talk about replacing the Star-Spangled Banner with America the Beautiful. There have been some attempts even by members of Congress, but those bills never go anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And that's in part because the Star-Spangled Banner is notoriously difficult to sing. I think it never mentions the word America. Um, so... Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to just hear a famous version of America the Beautiful.
2: And You know, when I was in school, we used to sing something like this. Listen here. Oh, beautiful For spacious skies For amber waves of rain For purple mountains. In majesties Over the fruited plane. Well, but now wait a minute I'm talking about America Sweet America You know, God done shed his grace on thee From to shine and you know, I
5: wish I had somebody help me sing this. America. America. Do you
0: have a favorite version of the song, Melinda Ponder?
5: Well, I have to just say, you know, his Ray Charles' version is so passionate and so heartfelt. Yeah that uh, it just is so moving, and when I hear it, it reminds me really of the first chapter of Genesis, you know, that God looked around and saw everything that he had done, and it was good, and I'm glad Ray Charles feels uh, that the country is so good, but I have had people say to me, you know, I don't like that song because the country has a lot of problems. So I hope when people read my biography, they'll learn about the problems the country had when Catherine wrote it, and, um, you know, think about the words she actually used, uh, hmm. which were not in the past tense. You know, she prayed that God would shed his grace on the country. Uh, and I think when you see the original version, America, that she wrote out here in Colorado, you can see it's much more sort of oriented toward the future than the words uh, that she revised it into into 1904. So, so what I've is chosen, what is your favorite? Well, I have uh, on my website, I have the uh, Indianapolis Children's Choir singing it since I first learned it in fourth grade in Indianapolis. And I just like a simple version that without any descans, etc.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm pleased to tell you we have a little surprise, which is your favorite version. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Melinda Ponder is author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Love in a Concentration Camp inspired a new opera that premieres in Denver this week. Your
2: letters give me courage They
3: make my spirit rise
0: Yap Bullock and Ina Soup grew close while they were in two Nazi camps during World War II. They survived their internment, married, and moved to the United States. This new opera, Steal a Pencil for Me, is their story. The production is a world premiere opening Thursday with Opera Colorado. Composer Gerald Cohen got to know the couple personally and spent years bringing the music to stage. And Gerald, welcome to the program.
1: Great to be here. I want
0: to start with the story behind this title, Steal a Pencil for Me. What does it mean?
1: Um, One important part of Yap and Ina's experience in the concentration camp as they were falling in love is that they passed notes to each other, both... um, both in order just to to reach each other, and because uh, Yap at this point was married to another woman, Manya, and uh, they wanted to sort of have a secret secret relationship going on. It's very complicated because M- Yap and Manya had actually planned to divorce after the war, so so their marriage already was on the rocks, but still they wanted to keep it quiet. Yeah,
0: there are layers to this. Yes, story. there are many layers.
1: So, um, uh, so. At one point in one of his letters, Yap says, my pencils are all broken. Please steal a pencil from me so I can write you another letter. So that's where the title comes from.
0: I'm going to just briefly interrupt the conversation to let people know that, according to the Associated Press, more than enough senators have voted to advance a bill now to end the government shutdown. The vote is still underway. Uh, All right. So Pencils become an incredibly powerful symbol. And I imagine that it's uh, perhaps risky to try to send notes back and forth in a setting like this.
1: Um indeed. Um, but uh, they somehow managed to do it many, many times. Um in the opera we have several places where where Ina and Yap are are stopped by by the Nazis or by Mania from from sending sending the notes, but they uh, that's that's part of the the drama in the opera. You knew Yap and Ina personally from your synagogue in New York? Yes, I knew them very well for, for more than 25 years. And um, there had been a, a book published of their letters and then a documentary.
0: Not because these letters survived.
1: Yes, the letters survived and were translated actually by their daughter, Margaret, who will be at the premiere. And... Um, at, in 2010, I spoke to them and said I was interested in writing an opera, and um, Yap said, "Well, hurry up because Yap was 97 at the time, oh. Ina was 87, and um, we did a, a initial workshop of the opera in 2013 where Yap and Ina was present. Uh, we we're, were both present. Um, that was for Yap's hundredth birthday, Ina's ninetieth, and that was an amazing experience having them there present for the opera seeing their story on stage and having the cast able to meet meet them Um, unfortunately they both have died since then um, but it was amazing they got to see it then and um, now it's having its first uh, professional premiere
0: this was a love that endured for sure let's hear some more of the music this is a duet between yap and ina and how they dream of living a normal life together marked by what they call ordinary breakfasts
1: A thing i want to tell you A
5: thing i want to tell you
0: I imagine in a concentration camp, just the idea of a calm, ordinary breakfast is
1: must feel so unattainable. Where did this idea come from? Um, the line about the ordinary breakfast actually comes from one of Yop's letters. So it's a quote. Um, the librettist on... Uh, and this is a wonderful playwright, Deborah Brevoort. Who, this is the word writer of the The word opera. writer, right? <laughs> she wrote. She wrote the words. I wrote the music. And um, after you know, going through the through the through the letters, she found this and uh, this wonderful phrase about the ordinary breakfast. And it's it's a key in a way to the opera because the opera isn't really about you know the heroism of them in the camp. It's about the the dreams of being able to live an ordinary life and love together. Um, after all that they've gone through, um, and that in in what keeps them alive is this vision of being able to have a real life together after after the the concentration camps.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a new opera that uh, premieres. It makes its world premiere, in fact, with Opera Colorado this week. It's called "Steal a Pencil for Me." It is a complicated love story set in a concentration camp. And I wonder if if the couple had any qualms about handing over their story and, and sort of letting artists do what
1: they would with it. Um, they, were, they were amazing, actually. And one of the... Um, most wonderful things uh, was Deborah and I having many hours of getting to talk with Yap and Ina about their story, you know, taking the bare bones which we had from from the letters in the documentary and, and really finding out the feelings behind it and all that. And there were, of course, changes we had to make in order to, to put it on stage because you can't take history literally. Some artistic license. I artistic license. And at first there was like, well, why do you have to change that? And then after that, they were incredibly generous and, and realized um, how important that was. And I think when they saw the opera, they really felt that it was a that it was a, a wonderful way of telling their story. And I think they accepted. You know those kind of changes as needed for dramatic purposes. It must have just been so important to have the
0: couple around as you wrote this. It was incredible. Yeah. It was really incredible, and I that mean. the it's a fuller story as a result, perhaps a more emotional one. So you you mentioned in fact that they were able to see a an early
1: run right. of this production right. before his right. death. Is that right? But Bef- be, well, before both. Uh, I mean, they. Um, this was in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian actually died in 2014, and yacht the next year. But Got in it. that, and in 2013, they were both still very much, very much there, and um, having them there was was one of. The the most important things of and we did the full opera it was a complete run. it was it was an earlier version but it was a complete opera well their
0: daughter was also there that's margaret Pollock, yes. and, and she attended the preview performance and then i uh, just recently talked to cpr classical yes, about what she remembers in that performance
2: i was sitting next to both of them and i watched the opera very closely but i side glanced at them constantly they were riveted They were shocked. They were excited. They were overjoyed. My father had to get up and speak after the first preview and say, an opera, because he had a very strong Dutch accent, an opera is the perfect expression of the Holocaust because it's so larger than life. There's no other way the story can really be told.
0: (laughs) An opera is larger than life. How did you come to the decision that this should be an opera? Was, Was that always the assumption or what?
1: Um, I had, well, I, I I love I love opera. Oh. I've been wanting to to I have written one opera before, and have been, uh, been thinking of writing an an opera based on the Holocaust for. Quite a number of years, partly because uh, my my parents were both refugees from Europe, and and so it's very much part of part of my my family history. This is personal history, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so when I realized how amazing their story was with all its intricacies, and I think one thing. I That for me, opera does beautifully and what I hope uh, in this case is that it's a very, very intimate personal story but set against the large history and the tragedy of the Holocaust. Right. It would be one
0: thing to make a a sort of epic that's sprawling and that's about all – or – to condense it and to tell all of that through the eyes of a couple, you know,
1: right, and so that that hopefully it, it gives it gives the um, the viewers the the, the audience the chance to think about the Holocaust in these very personal terms and thus get a get a a, a greater view of, of what it's what the meaning is. Did this couple ever
0: express to you sur- surprise that they survived when so many didn't?
1: Um, I don't know. It was quite surprised. I think. I think they realized that that there were so many, so many chances, so many different reasons why why it happened that that one person survived and another didn't. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no, you know, no good reason, it, it, you know, of the horror and and I, I think they mainly felt this was a terrible experience they went through, and now they wanted to live a good life after that.
0: In just a few seconds, sure. is there a modern
1: message? Um, I think one thing is a message of the Holocaust is, is to, um, to treat all people of all kinds with, with respect and love, and that also that love is a way to get through some horrible parts of life
0: composer Gerald Cohen's opera Steal a Pencil for Me tells the story of a couple that survived two Nazi concentration camps. Opera Colorado presents the world premiere Thursday at the Meisel Arts and Culture Center in Denver, and you can hear the premiere as well on CPR Classical. A
1: life of ordinary breakfasts Sugar for the tea. Oh, a breakfast. Sitting at a table, eating quietly. Oh, what I
2: would give to.